Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today with a very special returning guest, David Spinks. David, welcome home. Thanks, man. (laughs) Always a pleasure to bullshit on a podcast with you. I I do have to say, I don't know if you remember, you were the first ever episode of Venture Stories. You and Ryan Hoover. Yeah. I was trying to remember if that was this podcast. <laughs> oh yeah, and and I, I, we're almost episode five hundred now. So this is uh, this actually might be like four hundred ninety eight or something. So wow. this is uh, yeah, that was a few years ago. So it's, it's great to great to have you back. And you did one in person too. It's like yeah, a era, D- different world. And, and so we're here uh, among other things to talk about your new book, uh, the the business uh, of belonging. David, obviously, you've been in the space for, for a long time. Why this book, and and, and why now? You know, I've been trying to write this book for a long time, probably around the time where we first had our podcast interview. I was like, I want to write a book. And, you know, you know, I've been working in this space for 13 years now, which is wild. I got stuck on the number of 10 in my mind. Whenever people ask, I'm like, yeah, I've been working on this for 10 years. And then I realized recently that like I forgot a few years. (laughs) So I've been working in this space for 13 years and my entire career if I could say there's one theme of it, it's been in trying to better codify and understand what it means for a business to build community and turn it into frameworks and systems and tools that I can teach to others to make it easier for them. So they're not learning from scratch the way I had to. And what better way to do that than with a book? Um, I feel like it's kind of the ultimate culmination of all the work that my team at CMX has done and the, the work that I've done over my career. And so I've been wanting to write the book for many years, wrote a couple drafts of it just on my own with you know potential ideas to self-publish or eventually look for a publisher, but frankly, just didn't take it very seriously and, and was running other businesses at the time. So didn't prioritize it. And it was about a year ago uh, after CMX was acquired, I probably had like a little bit more breathing room for the first time in a while. And I was like, all right, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to publish a book. And so I, I made it a priority. I look back at my like my reflections in January from the previous year, my goals for 2020, and I wrote down publish a book. And that was like one of my three goals. And so I started pitching publishers and got told no a lot. Um, and I, I could talk about how I ended up getting to publish a book, but that's why now. And in in many ways, I feel lucky because I feel like if I did publish it even two years ago, it might have been just a little bit too early. And right now, it just feels like community just having its moment, which you've seen this yeah. over the last ten years. So you, you know, for those of us who've seen it, like we're like it's surreal to see how much interest and how many people are talking about community in the world of business now. So I kind of think it's coming at the perfect time because you've been involved for over a decade. I want you to talk about the the, the why now, but I also want you to, I mean, you know, where is the community space right now? What, what, what are people so excited for? Where is the momentum, but also in context of, of, of where we've been. And, and so if we're talking about like the different waves of, of, of that the or phases that the industry has gone through, how would you sort of contextualize it? It's, it's, I wish there was like a simple answer to this, but I think a simple answer would be misleading uh, because I think it's the combination of a number of different trends that are kind of coinciding and all happening together. I think if you zoom out, like on the biggest picture, the trajectory of business since the earliest days of business has been moving towards uh, more and more consumer power and control and uh, voice. And if you basically, if you look back to the industrial revolution, consumers didn't really have any power then. They couldn't really talk to each other right? All they had was essentially the telegraph at that time. So there's no way for someone to be like, oh, you shouldn't buy that Ford car. It's a piece of junk, right? You just like be sold it and you'd have to live with it. And then over the course of new forms of communication coming out and technology, people could talk to each other more. They had a voice. They could write, they could eventually write reviews and and tell each other about it. And and that just continued to grow and grow and grow. And then we had the internet and then we had social media, 
So all of a sudden, people could talk to each other in this you know extreme scale. And then we saw the rise of the customer service movement. Like it wasn't that long ago that Zappos came through and they're like, "Here's a bold idea. Let's give a shit about our customers and go above and beyond to surprise and delight them and make them really happy." Because it turns out if they're really happy, they're going to buy more shoes. And and that remember that was like mind blowing to businesses when that was happening about a decade ago. And that kicked off this whole customer service revolution. And then it moved into customer success, which came out in the last like three to five years, which was let's not just answer their questions and support them, but let's invest in our customers' growth. Let's make them really happy. Let's make them successful in their careers. Let's teach them how to use our product so they can use it in more efficient and creative ways. And it feels like community is kind of the culmination of that trend in that it's it's taking it to another level where it's not just about supporting your customers. It's not just about making them successful, but it's actually making them feel like they're truly a part of what you're building and giving them a piece of it, giving them control, giving them autonomy, giving them the keys to take the brand, take the community and run with it. So I think that's the macro trend. And then you just combine it with covid which has just accelerated things exponentially in the last year because all of a sudden you couldn't bring anyone together in person and every company was like, well, shoot, how do we bring everyone together online really quickly? How do we get all our events online? We need to spin up an online community. And and just, I don't know, it's just the continued evolution of social technology. Finally, like new tools are coming out that haven't been out. Like the community tech stack felt pretty stagnant and old for a long time. And all of a sudden now... There's like hundreds of tools coming out. There's a creator movement and creators building their own community. So there's all these kinds of convoluting trends that are are coming together into, you know, companies just realizing like, are people really matter? The no code movement, I think is a part of it too, because now technology is less of a competitive advantage and the people around the technology are the competitive advantage. So yeah, it's just these, all these things that now it's like, everybody's talking about community. Yeah. And let's go on that thread of the, of the tech stack, but even, even broader, if, if, if you were, you know, running a VC firm solely focused on startups that were either building communities or enabling communities, what would your uh, sort of either request for startups or your thesis be in terms of, w- w- you know, or how you would market map the, the things that you're, you're excited about? Yeah, that's a good question. And there's some funds now that are doing exactly, exactly. that, like the community fund with Lolita and Jesse, right? Uh, just interviewed them on my podcast. And I'm like, oh my God, there's a fun focused community. This is incredible. So yeah, I mean, I think there's it's a blue ocean of opportunity. I think everyone right now is very focused on the front end experience community platform, but the real opportunities are in the back end for the most part, because there, there's tons of options for the front end. There's tons of options for free communities that you know you can use Slack or Facebook or Discord. Uh, there's, you know, the discourses and Mighty and Circle and the enterprises like Koros and Vanilla. So you have all these tools that provide really great kind of like community experiences in different ways and community channels like distribution channels. But the back end is where community teams really suffer. And actually, we just did this research. We had over 500 community teams take our survey. And the number three one, two, and three problems that they face. One is not being able to measure and prove the value of their work. Number two is not being able to drive enough engagement. Number three is tasks that are very manual and take a lot of time and can't be automated. So number two, yeah, there's still challenges for engagement, but frankly, I think that's more of a strategy challenge and a tool challenge. But being able to tie your community data back to actual business data and business results is a huge challenge automating these things that just take a ton of time and could easily be repeatedly done with the right tools, having better insights into who your community members are. That's the other challenge right now is community members participate in all these different spaces, right? Your community isn't your Slack group. It's your Slack group and your email list and who who you connect with on social media. And maybe you have a forum as well. Maybe you run events. There's all these kinds of different sources of data and, and spaces that you have to manage that's all disparate and really hard to connect. So I think a lot of the opportunities right now are in this in their infrastructure and operations of community. Yeah, that, that, that's really interesting. And and before getting into you know some of the, the in the weeds of the book, just to, just to highlight CMX, I, I mean one of the things I, I saw you guys you know, doing among, you know, many others is uh, really just professionalize the the industry and, and just the, the position 
Oh, yeah. oh, and you've always talked about how, you know, it needs to be taken more seriously. It needs to be elevated. Just, uh, you know, community managers, leaders, you know, I, I can't remember the exact, uh, it, you know, I, I, I believe at the C-level. Um, how has that evolved? Yeah. So, I mean, you go back any number of years ago, like even a few years ago, and community was still kind of perceived as this junior level individual contributor role. Um, I mean, there would literally be companies launching community programs and just handing it to the intern and, and just hoping that that goes well. <laughs> so it wasn't perceived as something that was core to the business. It certainly didn't have a seat at the table. Um, it was a subset of, you know, a subset of a subset of a subset of something else in the company. And that's really changing now too. So same thing in our research, we're seeing community teams are growing. So when we did this research in 2017, uh, only 73% of companies had at least one dedicated community manager, like a full-time community professional on staff. And this year, in, in the last year, it was uh, 88%. So wild growth. And then we also found that teams with two or more people on the team, it was like two to five and then five to nine and then nine plus, all of those grew as well uh, in the last year. So teams are growing. Seniority is growing. So we're seeing more people take on more senior roles. And what we're starting to see is more people reach that level of VP of community and even now chief community officer, which is really exciting because ultimately that's what's going to you know give community a seat at the table is have someone that it's reporting to that isn't just under marketing or under product or under something else because community in my opinion, is best served in its own department that integrates with those other teams. So we're definitely seeing a maturing of the industry in terms of the seniority level and career path as well. That's awesome. I want to get into some of the the ideas uh, in the book. So maybe just starting at the, at the high level, uh, what does it mean for for a business to to build community? H- how do we know it's uh, it, it's it's genuine and, and not just uh, you know uh, marketing? Yeah. I mean, frankly, most communities can tell. Communities are really good at sniffing out bullshit. So if you you say you're building community and then it feels like marketing, trust me, you won't have a community. And there's a lot of companies doing that right now, right? They're just calling their customers community. But I, I think that's short-sighted and, and you know not going to work if you actually want to see the outcomes that community can drive. So what does it mean for a business to build community? I see it as two levels. You kind of have the the cultural, emotional level. So do the people that are engaged with your company, and that can be your employees, that can be your biggest ambassadors and fans and advocates, your customers, your followers, your investors. Uh, so anyone who's touching your company, do they actually feel a sense of community and connection to what you're building, to your mission, to each other? Hard to measure, possible to measure with surveys, but hard to measure. But that's one component. It's like, are you a community first company on a cultural level? Are you always thinking about how do you serve the community and how do you empower the people who are involved in your company to have a role to create, to contribute? And then there's the practical level of community strategy and for a business to invest in community. And the simplest way I can explain that is to kind of compare it to marketing. If marketing is all about building an audience, then you know how do you build an audience? You build an audience by helping people, right? You help them by creating a product that they like or content that they like. You entertain them. You give them value. To build an audience, you help people. To build a community, you help people help each other. And That sounds simple, but it's a fundamental shift in how businesses function. Because for all of history, for for most of history of businesses, the business creates all the value, the consumer consumes all the value. And what we've seen through collaborative consumption, through open source, through the growth of like DevRel and developer ecosystems is this concept of a business doesn't have to create all the value if what they can do is create a platform for people to create value for each other. And so that's the core concept of community for a business. And if you can do that, the scale that you can reach is exponential. Because imagine you have a 10-person team. Let's just use events as an example. So you want to host events. How many events can 10 people host? If you're paying those, you know, 10 people as full-time employees, let's say they can each host 
you know, let's say you have 10 people on an event team. It's a lot of people in event team and they each host, you know, one good event a month. That's 120 a year. But what if you took a community approach and you said, we're going to find a hundred people within our community from all over the world who are really passionate about what we're doing. And we're going to hand them a playbook and a toolkit and a system to be able to run their own local chapters and build their own event communities. And each of those people are doing it once a month. You just 10 X the amount of events you're doing. Right. And that sounds nice in theory, but it's actually been done in practice too. So Duolingo, really good example of this with a team of three people. They were running 2,600 events a month right before COVID. And they switched a lot of it to virtual now, but 2,600 in-person physical events a month with a team of three people. And they're able to do that because they empower the community to help each other. They empowered their audience, their users to create value for each other. And they gave them the playbook. They gave them the tools. They, they're, they're one of our customers at Bevy. And so they, they, they use our tool to essentially give them their own chapters to run. And they're able to scale from, you know, when, before they signed with us, they were doing like a hundred events and, and they scaled up to 2,600 events. So that's what it means for a business to build community. Wow. That, that's powerful stuff. How do we think about, you know, when you advise businesses who are thinking about, should they start a community? You know, should all businesses start a community? How, how should we separate the ones that should versus the ones that shouldn't? And, and then how do we think about, you know, just quantifying or measuring that, that value and saying, you know, is, is this working? not just is the community working, but also is this, is this driving um, ROI for our business? Yeah. So every business should build community because every business is made up of people. Do, does it mean you need a customer community? Maybe not, right? Like you can, you can start with employees or partners or, you know, it's basically like anywhere where there's people who would benefit from connecting with each other, there's an opportunity for community. And and even if even if your customer isn't, you know, they're not it's not necessarily about building a community around your product, it can be around your mission, right? Like a great example is like people are always like, Well, could you build a community around a, a toilet paper company? And it's like, Yeah, you can. Who gives a crap? It's a great, <laughs> great company, right? And they're all about sustainability and going green and like, you know, all their all their uh, toilet papers, uh, recycled paper, and they have a great brand and message and voice, right? Or you look at Buffer, it's a social media scheduling platform, but their whole community is really built around culture. It's about uh, transparency and, and changing how businesses function. So there's always an opportunity to build trust with people by giving them a sense of community and connection. And then the second question are around measuring the value. So that's a big question. Uh, a lot of the book focuses on that. So the kind of journey of the book is we start very high level about like why community is a new competitive advantage and what it means for a business to build community, like what we just discussed. And then it goes into how do you practically measure and tie it back to business objectives? And then we go from there into actually designing communities and all the way into the weeds of like, what should you be posting in your groups to actually get people to talk to each other and kind of like the in the weeds stuff that I've learned over the years. On the business measurement side, a really useful framework that maybe you already know, Eric, that we, we've used for a long time is called the spaces model. And so uh, starting with the objective that you have in mind for the business, SPACES stands for uh, uh, support. So you think about support forums, communities, where your customers are answering questions for each other. Really, that values around reduced support costs, increased adoption, uh, reduced churn. So things that support can drive. P is for product. So you're building community that's helping you develop your product and innovate, collect feedback, collect insights, especially for startups. This is a huge priority for product-led companies, product-led communities rather. And uh, A is for acquisition. So anything that's tied to marketing and growth, which could mean you launch a community that's driving a ton of traffic and becoming a touch point in that sales funnel and that sales journey. Um, or it can mean ambassadors, uh, chapter-based programs like the one I discussed from Duolingo, where people are hosting events on your behalf. It could be any of these different kinds of programs that, with the goal of essentially driving pipeline, um, driving growth, driving acquisition for the company. 
C is for contribution. So where it's where your product is a platform and you want people to contribute to it. So Airbnb, Udemy, anything that's open source, anything that's crypto, these are all platforms that are only valuable if people are contributing content to them. It could be Twitch, right? Any creator platform, any social network, it's all platforms that are created by people. So you want those contributors, those people to be really successful and you build a community uh, for those people, right? Like Twitch has creator camp that's all focused on helping their creators become more successful at using the platform. E is for engagement. So engagement is essentially customer retention, customer engagement. So by building community, you have more loyal customers and the average contract value goes up. They invest more, they stick around longer. And finally, uh, the final S is for success. So where your community members, your customers are teaching each other how to use the product better, how to grow in their careers, Salesforce's Trailblazer program is a really good example of that, right? It's all about helping Salesforce admins become more successful at using the product. But so, so spaces model, support, product acquisition, contribution, engagement, and success. Each of those have different metrics that you can uh, track and if you go to cmxhub.com and look at that new study that we just published, we actually have what are the top three metrics that companies track tied to each one of those objectives, and data on which ones of those objectives companies are prioritizing today. That's awesome. What are some frameworks you you can share from the, from the book about how to how to get communities uh, off the ground? Yeah, so getting into actually building community, the the core framework that I teach in the in the book is what we call the social identity cycle, and so it's the three stages that everybody goes through as they become a member of a community, and so uh, it, the three stages are identification, participation, and validation. So first, you need to identify identification, and you identify who is the group that you're really going to focus on. Um, and identities can take many different forms. There are many different levels of identities. So you can get more and more and more specific or more broad to find the identity that's lacking community today. And, and for the individual, what actually happens for them is they move from an individual identity into a social identity. Part of this is rooted in social identity theory, uh, which was created by Henry Tashfell, uh, social psychologist, and essentially people move through different levels of identity as they join communities from just categorization. Like, you know, I like basketball, you like basketball. That's a category that we're in to social identification where it's like, I identify as a member of the basketball community. Maybe I have a team that I love or I play on a team and I start, it starts to become part of my personal identity all the way to social cat, uh, social comparison, where I'm so invested in the community that now I compare it to other communities. And I'm like, screw that other basketball team, or it becomes such a strong part of my identity that I'm willing to fight for it and invest in it and be really uh, dedicated to it. And, and that was based on studies of like why people form these kinds of groups and that don't like each other, looking at politics, looking at regional groups, things like that. So you have identification, right? So it's like, who is this group that we're really focusing on? And what are their needs? Why do they need community? You know, what can we do that will give them a sense of connection they can't find somewhere else? Uh, then you move into participation. So you form a hypothesis around like, here's something that they need that that they're not getting right now. So let's create an opportunity for them to participate, which could just be consuming at first, right? Participation can take any form from just like passively consuming to like actively contributing all the way up to becoming a leader and a very active contributor. So you 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 form your hypothesis and and you test it out and you see, okay, do people actually participate? Are they getting value out of it? And 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 then that moves into the third stage of validation. So now do they feel validated for that participation? Did they learn something? Did they get entertained? Do they feel a sense of connection and belonging? Do they feel valued? You can drive that through extrinsic rewards and intrinsic rewards, but it could be as simple as just like following up and thanking someone for participating or joining the community and just making sure they feel heard and seen like they're and welcome. And if you complete that cycle, well, identification, participation, and validation, and they feel truly validated as a member of that community, now that reinforces the cycle 
and that deepens their sense of identity. Now they want to participate in greater and greater ways. As they participate in greater ways, and they feel more and more validated, that reinforces the loop again, and so on, until all of a sudden they're like a rabid fan, and they really believe in the community, and they want to host events, they want to contribute, they want to create, and they move up what's you know what we call the commitment curve. They become a highly committed member of the community. It's funny, just the identity thing. I noticed about myself. I just find myself watching Knicks basketball games, and I, I you know I don't watch anybody else, but for some reason being a Knicks fan is, is become so core to my identity. I, I can't even like I, I explain how it got there, but it's just, uh, they, they won me over. I mean, it's just, we do all sorts of crazy things just because they, you know, become part of our identity. Exactly. And if you think back to when you first became a fan, it, it, you went through that cycle, right? You, you first like identified like, okay, I'm interested in learning about the NBA or, yeah. I mean, why are you a Knicks fan? Is it because your family is Knicks, are Knicks fans? or I think it's because my family are Nets fans. <laughs> I, I, from just growing up as a kid, I remember the Knicks were always like underdog, you know, doing terrible. And I just, I identify with the underdog. And then oh I just, God. yeah, it's just so much sunk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My family's all Jets fans. I became a Giants fan. But yeah, so you probably started and you're like identifying with, okay, like my family, my friends care about basketball. And so, you know, I want to, I want to learn more about basketball and, and maybe you like watched a bunch of games, but then, you know, you, you, you participated by like watching uh, your first Knicks game. And then you felt validated in some way because yeah, they're the underdog. Maybe they won a game or maybe your family gave you shit for it. And you're like, this is fun and so you validated. And that reinforced the identity. And then you participate more. You start watching more games regularly. Eventually, you participate by going to a game. Then you buy a jersey, right? So it's this increased level of participation. And every time you do that and you feel a sense of validation for taking that action, that reinforces the identity all the way to now where you're like, I just watch Knicks games all the time because I just it's just part of who I am at this point. Yeah. And so people start communities. Maybe there's some initial... Maybe you know, maybe you're slogging from the beginning, or maybe you have this big launch and there, there's excitement to it. And then just sort of talk about the different phases that that communities go through when you know sometimes excitement wanes and you have to uh, you know step in there and and sort of you know apply some engagement mechanics to to get things going again. Yeah, yeah. So there there's no one right way to start community. Right. And I talk about this in the book. Some communities start really big with like a big splash and a big jolt of energy. CMX kind of started that way. We started with a conference that brought together hundreds of people. And that just lit a spark that like continued growing and turned into our Facebook group and our Slack and into our website and into everything that we built from there. Um, So sometimes you start really big. Sometimes you start really small. Most of the time you start really small. Like look at Burning Man, right? Started with like 15 people on a beach and now it's. 70,000, 90,000 people in the desert. Um, most big things start small. Reddit started small. Uh, I just interviewed Sarah Leary, who's a co-founder of Next. talked about how they just started with, with one neighborhood and they spent a ton of, literally went door to door, working on people's doors, asking them to join the platform just for this neighborhood. That out before they brought it to a second and a third. And now they're in like some ridiculous percentage, like 90% of neighborhoods in the U.S., Um, So starting small is a very safe bet and it's a lot easier than starting big. Um, In many ways, I started small with CMX too, because like I built up the network and small, I did a lot of small events. I just like personally built up a lot of things with CMX, uh, with the community industry before launching CMX. And the the conference was a way to spark that brand. So there's no right way to start it. Uh, I'd say look at it like uh, MVP, like you're building uh, a product with a lean startup model. And and just think about like how do you start really simple with a hypothesis with a small group test it learn iterate, and it really works for community because there's things you can do when it's a small group that you can't do when it's a large group. People it feels more exclusive, it feels more intimate. People are more comfortable being vulnerable in small groups, and so if you skip right to a big group, you actually lose an opportunity to create a really special experience. Once you so you you start that and that's the seed stage. So um, there's a community life cycle is a concept that's been around for a long time. And the way I like to describe it that that has helped me wrap my head around it is it's like a, a tree growing. So you start with a seed, and that's when like you need a lot of attention, a lot of energy, and you put a lot of effort into building it. 
and making sure it survives and it's healthy. And then you move into the growth stage. So you kind of have community market fit or community member fit, and uh, you're able to start growing it. So, um, you know, engagement starts happening more organically. Members start contributing more organically. It's less of you creating all the content and facilitating and more of the community creating a lot. Maybe it's like 50-50 at that point. Community norms are starting to form. You start to get more guidelines, kind of leadership structures start to form. And that will grow and grow. You know, that can be a year or two years in a growth stage, three years. Sometimes it can really take a long time for a community to reach the maturity stage. So again, you think about a tree, like a seedling then turns into kind of, you know, a tree that's really growing. Then it turns into a full mature tree. So you can visualize a full mature tree that's like really stable, really strong, really strong trunk and foundation. And so now 99% of the engagement in the community is driven by the community. You have a very formal leadership structure, a very clear set of rules and guidelines. Um, You probably have, you know, people hosting events and chapter programs, and, and it just continues to grow and grow and grow. And then, and then this is where communities can tend to stagnate. I mean, it can stagnate anytime, but once it reaches, reaches maturity, it's just like you're, it's like a company that gets too big and it's harder to be nimble and, and evolve and grow and innovate. And so that's where you'll start to see um, like a mitosis stage where like the, you know, the tree spreads its seeds and, and starts planting new trees. So people start to form subgroups, can be within the community or they spin out their own communities to kind of solve for a more specific voice or a need or something like that. You know, we've seen this with CMX now. We're seven years old and um, it's a pretty mature community and we can't be everything to everyone. And so there are people creating subgroups within CMX, but there's a lot of people who spun out and created their own groups that you know they started in CMX and now created their own spaces. And I think that's a good sign, right? That means that like the space is growing and more people want to build community around that identity. That makes a lot of sense. What are um, common mistakes that you see sort of uh, get people demotivated in, 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 in communities or, or, or that community builders do that sort of, you know, common traps that they should watch out for? Yeah. Part of it is just kind of getting discouraged too early and thinking that, okay, we like tried to bring this identity together and it didn't like immediately click. And so there's not a need here. Um, it, it's it's like building a startup and finding community market fits the hardest thing you're gonna do. So, you know, I talk about like don't be afraid of the crickets. If if you post something and no one responds, it's cool. Just try something else. Um uh if you host an event and only 10 people show up, great. You have a nice intimate event that you can really have a special experience for. It's unfortunate you bought pizza for a hundred people, but you know, donate the rest of the homeless and, and have a great conversation. It's just like keep showing up even when no one else shows up because it's that consistency of showing up every day and being a part of the community, which you can only really do if you're genuinely curious about the space and and really passionate about it because it's, there there are going to be a lot of hard days where you just want to give up on it and your genuine curiosity for that space and for those people is what's going to help you push through. So I would say that that's one is just like, keep, keep experimenting, look at it like an experiment. And every time you run one, you're learning and just keep improving. Um, another one is, I think, focusing too much on the tool and yeah. not enough on the people. Um, people get really bent out of shape about like, I need the perfect forum or platform or whatever before I can build this community. But you know, you can start with a Zoom call, you can start with a dinner, you can start with Slack and then move somewhere else. Uh, It's the people that make the community, not the platform. And so, I mean, for a business, there's certainly a lot of community debt that you'll accumulate if you're not thoughtful about the tools you use from the early days, because you might find yourself in a position that a lot of companies find themselves in where they have a great thriving community, but the tools aren't connected back to their CRM and, and or Salesforce, and they can't really measure the business impact. So there, there is a trade-off there, but don't let like perfection prevent you from just starting to bring people together and having those conversations because you can always adapt and migrate from there. It's, it's interesting in terms of like how to you know start the fire that is community or really get it going. It feels like some people do it in different ways. Some people do it around sort of like the content that they create 
and then sort of try to create it from there. Other people do it more like bottoms up, like starting with events or starting. How do you think about sort of those different approaches or other approaches to like, you know, start the fire or sort of, you know, trade-offs or how do you sort of contextualize it? They're all great. I think they all come down to trust. They're all just different means of earning people's trust, right? So, you know, for CMX, it was like throwing this really great conference and getting really, really incredible speakers on stage and investing serious money into like producing it, which is funny to think about that first event feeling produced. But at the time, that was like the most highly produced event in the space that earned a lot of trust. And that made people, you know, respect uh, us and respect each other. Like they, they valued the other people in the room more because because of that trust and because of that quality. So that that was a way of building trust, right? It's just like going big on production and creating something that like it needed to really solve a problem for them. Um, I mean, it's all content in the end of the day, right? So that's content. Or you could be the Lenny Ratitsky and, and start an incredible newsletter that like goes so in-depth into topics that people are blown away by the quality of that content. And then he says, cool, you want to become a part of the community, become a paying uh, subscriber, and you're going to get access to all my community resources and community spaces. And so that was a great way of building trust. You know, Burning Man started really small with a small group of people, but it was like a close group of friends and like around a really meaningful message that built trust. So um, it's hard to build community if you don't have people's trust. Yeah. Um, because why when when you invite them into your space why should they trust you why should they come how do they know that it will be a safe space and a quality space and that the people in that space will be curated thoughtfully unless they trust the curator and so all of these are just different means of earning trust in yourself as someone who is a good curator and, and creates good content that draws people into the community it's interesting. You brought up the Burning Man example in terms of you know, starting small and going big. How would you advise them or other communities that are also are asking themselves the same question, which is like, how big do we go? How do we you know, ex- extend the magic to others while not diluting the magic? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people would say they have diluted the magic, right? Um, but you know, the people who are coming to Burning Man for the first time today are seeing the magic for the first time and, and with fresh eyes. They don't have um, the experience of, you know, the OGs. Um, so I, I mean, I think just ignore that that question entirely and just like keep building what, you know, feels like the, what the community, I mean, listen to your community, but don't over rotate on, you know, the original members not wanting change because stagnation equals, death for community the same way it does for businesses or products. Cause it, if it doesn't innovate, someone else will create a community that does innovate and just will end up feeling a lot fresher and newer and solve for, you know, more of the unique challenges and problems that people have, but you, you can scale intimacy. So yeah. you don't have to make your event bigger. You know, uh, the dinner party is a really good example of a community that um, it's a community for people who have experienced significant loss who are in there, it started as 20s and 30s, but then the founders aged a bit as well. And so now it's all the way to 40s. But they originally, their story, their story is really impressive. It's just, I mean, they not impressive. It, it's um, an interesting story, a meaningful story of both of the founders had lost uh, parents at a, at a young age. And when they went to support groups, they found that most of the people in those support groups were of older generations. Like most of the people who are in support groups for loss are older. And so they didn't really feel like they could identify. And so they created the dinner party, uh, which was one potluck dinner for people in their 20s and 30s who experienced significant loss in their life to come together and just talk. And, and it was like such a unique and compelling experience because, again, they focused on a unique identity that it was, you know, they got much more specific. A lot of the time, the opportunity in communities and getting more specific about the identity and that worked so well that they started hosting more and then they they created the playbook and let other people host more. And now they have hundreds of chapters hosting these potluck dinners, but the dinner itself is only 10 people or so at, at a dinner. Um, so it's still extremely intimate, extremely small in the experience, but it's reaching thousands and thousands of people all over the world. Um, so you can scale intimacy. It's really about 
choosing the size that aligns with the mission of your community. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it is interesting, like to your earlier point, you know, the, uh, as an example, like the early users of product hunt weren't the later users of product. And they were probably, you know, Hey, it was cooler when it was just, you know, Sphinx and Elman and all, all, you know, all our friends, but uh, you, you can't make everyone happy, I, I guess. And they should, you know, you yeah. should, mine shouldn't have like, yeah. I used to be on product on every day and now I'm like, I check in once in a while and I, I yeah. still feel good vibes from it. But I'm like, yeah, <laughs> like the value that, I mean, that's a thing too. It's almost like, <laughs> it's like the, I, I just got thought of this uh, analogy, which I think makes sense in my head of the founding members are like the kindling for the fire. They're yeah. gonna, they're, they get the fire started, but then they burn out. And then you have like the, the masses, the big logs totally. keep the fire going. Um, but like the kindling's not there anymore. Like that shit's gone. Yeah. It's like the embers. So it kind of feels like that. Like a lot of the time, the founding members, like they're your early adopters. They're, they'll like go in and light the fire, but there's a reason they're there early. They like being early adopters. And as it develops yeah. more mature, they're going to move on to the next hot thing because they exactly. like being at that phase. Yeah. So yeah, it is. is yeah. It's funny. Yeah. Some people just, I guess, like the exclusivity or, you know, like the scarcity of it or like the, like the discoverability of it. I mean, it is interesting, you know, OnDeck's been around for a few years, CMX been around for, you know, for longer. You, I'm sure you've had people who've sort of, you know, cycled in and out of communities and, and you've been there the whole time and I've been there the whole time. And it's just interesting to see sort of like the life cycle of any, you know, individual community members and and how that evolves, uh, how that evolves over time. Yeah, it's really, I mean, the coolest stories that I hear now are, you know, seeing someone who came to that first CMX summit seven years ago and they were just like a junior community manager and didn't know what they were doing. And now they're, you know, a VP of community, uh, like, like Holly Firestone's a really good example. She wrote an article about her first experience at that first CMX summit oh. and how like at that time there was nowhere to go to like, I mean, there, there were places to go. There's some great communities, but there wasn't a conference like CMX where you would go and just see hundreds of people who, yeah identified with you and said, like, we get it. We know that community is important. We know why you do what you do. We think you're really important. Your work's really valuable. And and how that just like helped change her mindset on this career path and like made her decide to stick with it. And now she's like one of the top community professionals in the industry. She's VP of community at Venify. And like she's like reporting directly to the CEO and like creating the department there and just like setting such an incredible example for the for the next, you know, batch of community professionals that will follow in the path that she's paved. Um, but just to see those stories of, you know, people whose careers have developed. We've had people who have left the industry, but then came back and they just like they're like, yeah, I needed a break from community, but I'm back. And the first place they thought of was like, I got to get back into CMX and they still remembered it. And we're still here, you know, ready to help because we've kept, you know, evolving as well. So, you know, I think it's, it's a very healthy thing. Your, your members will churn their lives change, their circumstances change, the community changes. So just stay focused on your mission, stay focused on solving problems for, you know, the core identity that you're really trying to serve. And if people ebb and flow through that identity, I think that's normal. Yeah, that's awesome. What we were talking about earlier a bit about, you know, people being vulnerable with each other. It is interesting there, especially in sort of these polarized times, there, there's always that old rule of like, hey, don't talk about, you know, religion or politics or don't talk you know, certain things. There, there are conversations that if they go well, they will bring people together. And if they go poorly, they will, you know, <laughs> estrange people. Um, and it's, do you have a, I'm sure you, you talk to a lot of communities that are sort of facing like, what is our role and like, should we be hosting our conversations, these conversations in our community? Uh, is this too, you know, too divisive? How, do you have a, a framework for how to think about that? It's, it's a complex question. It's not something that has a very simple answer. We have some data on this actually from the report. We um, wanted to understand how community teams, what they decided to do during uh, the Black Lives Matters protests over the last year um, around the murder of George Floyd. And so we asked them things like, do you think it's important for your company to take a public stance on diversity, equity, and inclusion? And and like 80% said yes, uh, something, something around that. But then we asked them, did you actually make a public statement about Black Lives Matter in your community? And it was only like 40%. 
And so there's there's certainly still a gap between what people believe should companies should do and community leaders should do and what they actually feel comfortable doing. And I mean, that was it was a volatile time. Like we we ended up posting a bunch of things in our community and for the most part it was received well, not by everyone. And on both sides, we had people who said we didn't do enough. We had people who said it was too much. There's uh the argument of when you talk about specifically racial diversity and systemic racism, that like it's not a political issue, it's a it's a human rights issue. And I I tend to agree with that. We had Trump this year, like really divide people. So it's like, do I share what I personally think about Trump, knowing that there are Trump supporters? And how do I feel about, you know, how do I feel about bringing that conversation into the community that in theory should focus on a, on on like the topic that brings people together, not politics. But I mean, it's it's a blurry line. And my my take on it is that it doesn't matter what your community is focusing on. It, you could be focused on video games or sales or music or whatever. It's still made up of people. Yeah. And when you choose to build a community, you are choosing to create a space where you are defining what is normalized and what is not. And it's both the power and the opportunity um, and the challenge for community builders in that you have the choice of basically saying, I, I'm, I'm just going to let our space, this, this, this social space, maintain the status quo. And if you know that the status quo isn't right and that it needs to change and you're not doing that in the space that you are hosting and creating, then you're part of that problem. Yeah, that's well put. I want to ask you about uh, a, a, a thing that a lot of community maker builders think, which is how do I decentralize, control, and empower others? Empower others to to lead, to lead certain chapters, to lead certain elements of the community, such that it's it's less this you know tops down or, or one to many, and really you know uh, empower. What have you seen be really effective in, in doing that? Yeah, well, so a lot. I mean, a lot. A lot of it's just like making people feel really heard if they care about the community, which is the first step, right? Like, it's great if you want other people to host events, but if they don't give a shit about your community, they're not going to go out and host events representing it. So, first step one is just like build a community that people really love and value, so that they organically want to advocate for it and contribute and be involved. Um, if you don't, if you find people like don't care to share their voice or to create, then you're still working on community market fit. If you have that, then it's creating spaces and channels and opportunities for them to contribute. You you might find that there's a lot of people who want to contribute, but they don't know how. And so making it really clear, like, yes, we want you to host events in your local community. Um, here's the program. Here's how to apply to be a chapter leader. Here's how we support you. Here are the benefits that you're going to get. Just making all that information really, really clear you'll you'll likely find that you'll get a lot of people applying to be a part of that program. It's also just like continuing to make sure people feel heard and so that's that that happens through communication and conversation. Three simple things you can do. One is one-on-ones. So for the CMX team, every member of our team has to do at least one interview with a community member every week and then they go back to Slack and they share what insights they took away from that conversation. Um, and so it's just like one very simple way to make sure like we're staying close to our members and having one-on-one conversations, which get you different insights than other forms of feedback collection. So we, we learn a ton from that. Two is surveying. Um, so we uh, we haven't done this in a while, but we're actually about to kick off our next uh, community health survey and community DEI survey to make sure that you know we're collecting feedback from the broader community on, are we solving problems for you? Do you feel engaged in this community? Do you feel connected? Do you feel safe? Do you feel welcome? What can we do to help you in better ways and connect you in better ways? Um, so surveying, really great one. And then third is uh, community councils are becoming very popular and are very effective. So essentially inviting a core group of community members who are representative of the community. So making sure it's diverse geographically, ethnically, um, experience wise, new members, old uh, experienced members, you know, and 
running that council, which usually looks something like doing a council meeting once every month, sharing big updates and questions and plans with the, with the committee to get their feedback, um, having them work with you on initiatives and shaping surveys and things like that. So it's kind of like a representative model of having members of the community have their voice represented in the community amongst leadership and the decisions that are being made. So yeah, I think making sure they feel heard, listening very closely, and then making it really clear how to get involved and how to take on that leadership position, whether it's for events or becoming a moderator or a coach or mentor or whatever, um, just making it really clear. Uh, and you'll find that a lot of, you'll, you'll have a pretty successful program. That's awesome. I, I think that's a good place to wrap. Uh, we've just covered uh, just a bit of, uh, of of some of the stuff that uh, people can expect in in the business of, of belonging, and and I uh, can confidently recommend that you should, uh, if you've been interested in what you what you heard today, you should definitely buy it. You can pre order it now. It, it's the culmination of of the uh, thirteen years that that you and and and, and CMX um, have uh, have spent, uh, you know, just learning all these different frameworks and and building them and and testing them. And uh, I'm I'm really excited to see you uh, to see you get this out there, and excited for people to to read it, and for all of us to uh, to build better communities as a result. Awesome, man! Appreciate you. Appreciate you having me back. Yeah, 500 episodes. <laughs> uh, absolutely. So, any last minute plugs besides so they can find it on Amazon, they can find you on Twitter, any, anything else that people should know about. Yeah, you can also just go to cmxhub.com slash book. And there's a lot of information about the book there and different places you can order if you don't want to order on Amazon. Um, cmxhub.com, we have tons and years of articles, research, frameworks. Um, we host multiple events a month. We have training programs. So our mission is to help community professionals thrive and help community teams be more successful. So everything that you would need to build community for your business um, we provide it there. Um, and uh, we do that through CMX on education and we do it through Bevy on uh, the product side. So if you're running any events, so we do all virtual events, virtual meetups, those kinds of chapter programs, we tie it all back to your CRM. So you can actually measure the business value of your community. That's kind of our core focus with the platform. Uh, you can check that out at bevy.com and hit me up on Twitter. I'm at David and I tweet yeah. a little and uh, yeah, most of the, the frameworks I've learned about how to think about community, I've learned from, from David and CMX over the years. So uh, thank you for putting this out there and for all, all the great work you, you, you've been doing through, uh, throughout the years on this. Of course. And join on deck community builders. I'm, thank you. I'll be given a, a chat, a, a session there. So absolutely. Right. Excited, to, excited to have you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.